Welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute and the host of the Quadcast. Today, we continue our series with college presidents on student mental health during COVID-19 and the year that changed everything. Our guest is Dr. Pam Edinger, president of Bunker Hill Community College in Boston, the largest community college in Massachusetts. Hello, Pam, and welcome to the Quadcast. It's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be talking with you today, and we'll get started in a minute. Just a little bit about your background. So Pam has been the president of Bunker Hill since 2013, but she has been a part of the community college movement nationally for more than 25 years. As anyone who knows Pam knows, she is a tireless advocate for the success and well-being of community college students across the country. One other thing I wanted to mention, too, was that Pam was the moderator of a webinar that the Mary Christie Institute did back in February with the American Council on Education. This was specifically on community college student mental health. And I mentioned that because, Pam, that was a great event. Thank you again. And we learned a lot during that discussion. So it is a good frame for what we will talk about today as well for any of our listeners who were a part of that webinar. So Pam, my first question is a biggie, but I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this. So as far as your students experience this past year, 14 months, which as you point out, has been very different than traditional four-year college students. What are the big takeaways in terms of what your students have been experiencing? And I guess the second part of that question is, how are you sort of applying that knowledge to supporting your students going forward? You know, Marjorie, that is a biggie. <laughs> it is it is the, the question of the year almost. One big takeaway is that our students' current situation has been a long time in the making, right? It is not overnight that they all of a sudden, because of COVID, suffer all of these things. We have been making the bed that we're lying in, literally, for over the last two, three decades. Because if you look at the, the student populations that community colleges often serve, whether you're in an urban or a rural environment, it is that they're first-generation students, and a large portion of them are adults. They work. And education is not at the center of their existence, their family is making a living is, and they are also the backbone of our communities. But I think over the last couple of decades, all the infrastructure that surrounds them have been slowly eroding. We have not been investing in our local communities in the the most basic things, right? Healthcare, transportation, housing, childcare, mental health, higher education. So we're getting a smaller and and smaller amount of resources into those communities. So by the time COVID was ready to hit us, we're already stretched thin. And you can see it in the disconnects that we have in our K-12 systems in our large urban areas or or the lack of performance in community colleges in urban and, and rural areas. So when COVID hit, it's kind of like the social contract that we thought we had with our students. We're all broken. There is no safety net in any of those areas that I name, you know, higher ed, K-12, housing, health, transportation, childcare. So it is as if COVID caused all of these things, but it is really COVID shining a light on what is broken. So the big takeaway for me 
is that we're no longer a silo sector. Community colleges don't stand alone. Just like housing, environment, you know, childcare, healthcare, none of those things stand alone. We really are woven at the roots. And when one falls, the other one follows. I wanted to talk a little bit about how that impacts enrollment because I can imagine for folks in your position, you're not surprised enrollment has declined given that it's often a choice, education or their childcare or their employment. Right. And when they were hit with that perfect storm, often it, it was that their schooling and their degree was the first to go. Is that is that sort of what you were seeing? Absolutely. We are not at the center of their lives. And when catastrophes hit, we're the first to go. That's exactly right. And you're putting your finger on one of the greatest mythologies right, in higher education. As if administration, faculty, and staff can actually control enrollment. <laughs> so that is something that, you know, it's kind of like making weather. Just because you can forecast the weather doesn't mean that you can make the weather. And enrollment is really the same way. Enrollment is really logical if you put the student at the center and sort of take the student's experience and project outwards. So our students are falling apart in terms of they're unemployed. They have basic needs in food and housing. They're losing, I mean, they're losing all of the support system that was already very, very thin. So of course, they're not going to come back to, to school. It is a logical conclusion. Yes, folks were shocked. I'm like, unless the economy rebounds, unless we get childcare back, unless we get K-12 back, we're not going to have a recovery from the 15% down that we had for the community colleges. We're beginning to see a little bit of rebound, though. Summer enrollment is a little bit up from last year. And that's because folks, some folks are going back to work and the K-12s are going back. So the parents have somewhere to take their children. It is a huge lesson for those of us who are working in the front lines that our tea leaves is not in, you know, whatever it is that we used to think it is offering better classes or different kinds of classes. It's really in reading the lives of our students. That is where we're going to read enrollment for the future. So Pam, you make such great points. When you talk about the supports that have to go into a student, enrolling and persisting in community colleges, that's really one thing that may be a good or a silver lining to COVID, that we're shining a light on that. And I agree that a lot more people are acknowledging that including, of course, the Biden administration. I wanted to ask you a little bit about policy. So wanted to ask you about the plan for free tuition, but also ask you about the American Families Plan that sounds like it is acknowledging that we need to be paying for living expenses in order to keep students at community colleges in school. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, you have it right on the nose. If it's okay, I want to tease that apart a little bit. Sure. So for two or three decades, we have been weaponizing a lot of the social mythologies about poor people and and people of color, uh, things like welfare queens of the 1980s that Ronald Reagan has started that gave the excuse to defund our communities and, and the social systems. The Biden administration is trying to actually seriously come back better, right? So, so infrastructures is one of those places and stabilizing basic needs and food is one of those places. And even things like broadband for all, because that's where the future of healthcare is for rural areas and urban areas and a future of education. The piece about free college is interesting. It has embedded in it the turning over of a couple of really flawed assumptions, which is if I pay for all your tuition and fees and to some degree books, you can come back and finish. The reality is you would have to help me pay with pay tuition and fees, but also make sure that I have enough hours in my day so that I don't have to work 40 hours and take five classes. 
right? So it is really the full cost of education, which includes those of us who have traditional college students in our family. It's tuition and fees. It's food. It's housing, right? Because those are all counted in in the tr- traditional understanding of college. But we have detached it from the community college conversation about what it costs to go to college. So what? What the Biden plan or all the plans out there really is to re-acknowledge the fact that even though you're an adult going to college, you still have to count for the total cost of education, which includes food and housing, right? And then there's really only 40 hours in a week. And if you're really, really hardworking, 60 hours in a week, and you can't both work and go to school at the same time. So that's a great pivot to my next question, which is really about the mental health and emotional well-being of community college students. As we know, it is so closely tied to persistence, to success, to their ability to complete their educations and do well. I guess there's a couple of ways to look at this that that we sort of dissect. One is service delivery and making sure that they get the support they need should they be presented with a problem, meaning besides the usual anxiety and stress and the burdens that they bear in the um, lifestyles that you described. And then the other, I think, sort of more interesting thing and potentially more sustaining is the preventative strategies, some of the the innovative work that we talked to like Russell Lowry about on our webinar, which is creating communities of, of caring. But I'll separate those two questions and ask first about barriers and opportunities around just providing more support for mental health for community college students, either on campus or in the community. That has got to be one of the biggest takeaways for us coming out of COVID. It's interesting that I hear our faculty and our staff talking about how they have been stressed through the year with being remote, with not having a community to come to and the basic needs that they have. And I'm thinking our students go through this with or without COVID. I mean, this is the same kind of stress that they go through every day. Some of it is practical, acknowledging that food is an issue and therefore providing food, either through our food pantry and the deliveries that we do. Having counseling services, I know that we don't have enough here on campus. And one of the things that one of our deans pointed out is, even if you do have enough, it cannot be hidden. You need to point to it and say, see, it's there. Please go. It's safe. You can go. And just understanding that um, is important, particularly for our men of color, our men and boys of color who have been suffering the most because the background to their dilemma is that even before COVID, they were the most alienated and disenfranchised. And what COVID did was, like it did everything else, it shined a light on it. So our biggest retention worries is really our men of color, um, our Latinx men, our, our Black and African-American men. We say to them, we are going to pay attention, and please know that we are paying attention, right? Just Just calling it into existence in that way. So the preventive piece is is the larger question of how we recover. There's been a lot of conversations about economic recoveries that are just and equitable, that you don't only create jobs in communities of color and bring them back. You really have to create leadership in our communities of color and poverty so that when we come back, it is sustainable because there's leadership there. And I would say to you, that is the preventative strategy for mental health. It is not just having sort of a sickness and disease-based model where students are taken care of when they go into crisis. It's about the question of why don't they feel belong in the first place? We have taken the understanding of Terry Yasso, who is a scholar, 
based in the UC system in California. And she says, pay attention to cultural wealth and pay attention to student assets because our students are community resilient. They have community wealth and cultural wealth, even though they don't have physical wealth. And it is those assets that gets them through when there are difficult times like this. And she says, you know, acknowledge that that your students have that and they have navigational wealth. They have social capital in their own community and adopt that and bring it into the community college. I've heard you talk about this before, Pam, and I, I just love this concept of the asset-based strategies. Talk a little bit about how the particularly for, as you said, Black men, Latinx men who are have been hardest to reach, who really need that sense of belonging. Sense of belonging and creating communities of caring is all part of this, isn't it? It's all part of that sort of asset-based approach to looking at this issue not as, you know, dropout rates or problems with persistence. It's what have we done to create a place that they want to stick with? Is that, is that, do I have that right? It is. We have spent so many decades trying to help minority populations or populations who are in poverty to navigate, quote unquote, higher ed systems. If you have to hire somebody to help you navigate a system, wouldn't the question be, well, why was the system built like that in the first place? Yeah. And I think we're getting to those basic issues. I, I have a, a lovely dean who has said this to me a while back, and I carry it with me all the time. There is nothing wrong with our Black and Latinx men. It's the system that's broken. So no matter, I mean, you know, navigation, yes, that we, we have to help in order to, because we can't change the system overnight, but you have to sort of do both things, right? You have to sort of walk and chew gum <laughs> so that we, we can help them succeed now by helping them navigate, but also to reform the system. That is exactly the definition of a just and equitable recovery. You come back better. We don't come back to where we were before because that wasn't working. Yeah. No, the new normal, people don't want to, well, the new normal may be one thing, but the old normal is is not a good thing for a lot of people, a lot of groups. So I I probably just time for one last question, and it's related to all of the above, everything we've talked about. So the connection to from two-year colleges to four-year colleges is something that I think needs to be further examined. I know you've talked about it before. So there's so much at stake here, right? Four-year colleges are looking at two-year colleges as enrollment pipelines, right? They want students to go into their institutions. Obviously, we as a society want students, a certain percentage of students, to have the four-year degrees as their end goal. But I know you've talked about this before. The connection between the two is needs work, right? And so talk a little bit about that as my last question for you. I had talked a lot about being student-centered. A good portion of the conversations that we've been having with our four-year brothers and sisters is about transactional things that we do. How do we transfer our students? How do we count the credits? Are your courses rigorous enough and are they college level? No, regardless of the fact that we all are answering to the same accrediting systems, there is a, a mythology of, of rigor, a mythology of, of meritocracy 
that we all carried with us, right? So the community colleges are at the very bottom, and my colleagues in Cambridge are at the top of the food chain, and there's all all kinds of different uh, other institutions in between. But that's not really, in some ways, the reality. If you do want that adult student to succeed in community college and transfer, we have to sort of flip the script and say to ourselves, what is the value of these adult students who want to transfer to the four-year college? What are the assets that they can bring to the four-year college that the four-year colleges right now don't have, right? The the four-year colleges right now are running on 18 to 20-year-olds, first-time college students. Well, we have a demographic cliff coming. There are going to be a lot less of those students. And we also know that transfer students do better, if not equally well, as native students in four-year. So instead of trying to help our students navigate transfer, we really have to say, in a way, how do we reform the system of four-year colleges so that it's not hostile to adult students? That's a very different question than what transfers. And I can tell you, this right now, it is hostile. Right, right. No, I, I, that's what I was sort of saying. I, I don't hear a lot of administrators talking about this as an issue, you know, that it just seems like it's on the student. Because we're also polite, <laughs> so, so academics are, are, are bred on politeness, and you know, yeah. I'm a, I'm a rude person. Yeah. I have no shame, Marjorie. Do not deride my students because, damn it, they've gone through a lot to get here, and they deserve our respect. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think right now the conversation has anything to do with respect for our students. So, yeah, I'm happy to be rude. So, what about we have one forum that's just for rude dialogue only, right? <laughs> so, we'll see how much of these issues will get solved. Pam, honestly, your passion and your love for your students comes through so clearly, and you're just a delight to speak to about these issues. These are really, really important, and we're lucky to have you at the helm of of all this. So thank you so much for being with us today. As always, it's terrific chatting with you. Pam Edinger, president of Bunker Hill Community College. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.